Howdy. It is an honor to be here today. Mr. President, thank you so much. Um, Becky and I were really looking forward to meeting you uh, when you came. One of our good friends was chairman of the committee that, uh, that brought you here. They met in our building uh, to uh, have those conversations. We prayed where they met. Uh, we looked forward to your coming. Uh, when I heard you were coming, I had no idea who you were. <laughs> I, 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 I'd never heard of you before. And, and guys, I, I want you to know something. I want, this is a... This is a mark of great leadership. Before we ever had an opportunity to speak a word to our president of our seminary, he was quoted saying nice things about Tarrant Baptist Association. That is huge. That was deeply meaningful to us. Everything that I have ever heard him say about Tarrant Baptist Association has been good. And we are deeply grateful for that. We love this seminary. We love you. Uh, students, I want you to know, you'll see this blonde-haired lady right here walking around the campus every now and then. I just need you to know she's praying for you. Every now and then you'll see me walking around this campus, and, and I'm praying for you. Every day as I drive to our office right across the street, I pray for uh, our president for the faculty, the staff, the administration, and all of you students. I want the days that we're living in now and the days ahead of us to be the very best in the history of the seminary. And this seminary has a glorious past. You know that well. I love this place. I love this seminary. So meaningful to me personally. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 19. Find verse 11. Acts 19, verse 11. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning. <clears throat> I, I gotta confess, I was a little disappointed when they changed the name from the Holman Christian Standard Bible because those initials were perfect. Hardcore Southern Baptist. The, the, uh, so it lost a little something when they renamed it, but I love this translation. And I love God's word as I know you do. And I know you would want to join me in standing in honor of God's word as we read it together. Acts 19, beginning with verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. 
When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. Let's pray. Our Father, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us today. Give us willing and obedient hearts to follow wherever you lead. Whatever you want, that's what we want to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I love Luke's gospel. When I was a student here, Dr. Wardeskidian would take us through the gospel of Luke in his New Testament class as his base gospel and compare with the others from there. And he taught us so much about how Luke saw things. Luke, the physician, was able to see some things and notice some things that others might have overlooked. And when we come to this story, the very first verse in it, verse 11, is, is full of details that we could easily bypass if we weren't paying attention. But notice the way it's translated here. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. God was doing miracles. Now, notice what it says. It calls them extraordinary miracles. Now, the reality is miracles are extraordinary in the first place, aren't they? <laughs> Michael Harbin, in his, his uh, introductory text that's used at Dallas Baptist University for the Old Testament, New Testament class, uh, calls miracles supernormal. It's normal because God is the one who created our bodies whole in the first place. It's normal because he knows how to restore our bodies to health if he so chooses. It's super normal when he does something that we can't explain except by the grace of God. I love that idea. So here God was performing extraordinary miracles through Paul's hands. All of that's important. God was the one doing it. The miracles were extraordinary, and you could read on and, and see the, the extraordinary nature of what was happening there. And it was through Paul's hands. God used Paul. I love this idea. Think with me. Moses and Aaron had their staff. God could do more with that staff than they could. David had a sling and five stones. God could do more with that sling than David could. A little boy had a lunch of bread and fish, and Jesus did more with that lunch than anybody could. God can take what we have and maximize it to change lives forever. I love this idea. You read on through that text and you see the story and, and you can't help but laugh. I mean, Paul is doing extraordinary miracles, 
through no big effort of his own. He's just obeying God. He's where God wanted him to be, doing what God wanted him to do, and God was bringing about extraordinary results. And so these people wanted to get in on what God was doing. And so they preach in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, but they had no firsthand faith relationship with Jesus. And that's the big deal. Back when I was in college, some, some friends of mine at the Baptist Student Ministry uh, talked about their pastor preaching uh, on Sunday about secondhand faith. And it was from this text. I've never preached that text until today. I, I've always pondered it, thought about it. I love the idea. These seven sons of Sceva had a secondhand, at best, faith. And that didn't change anything. In fact, it got them beaten up pretty bad. I mean, it's hilarious the way Luke writes this. They were beaten and naked. Now, to be naked in that day was very shameful. To be naked in this day is next to normal. Isn't that right? I went to Walt Disney World years ago with my kids, and it was amazing how many people wore crosses around their necks. And I thought Jesus would probably be a little bit more honored if they put a few more clothes on around those crosses as well. But they were beaten and naked. Hilarious. Look on down there. In verse 16, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them. Then look on down to the last verse there in this story. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. These guys were prevailed upon by a demonic man. But God's word flourished and prevailed in the hearts of those who received it. Here's what I want you to get from this text. Um, more than anything, is that you have a first-hand faith. Don't just go on what somebody else says. You have your favorite Bible teachers, so do I. You have your favorite professors, so do I. Uh, we all have those people we love learning from, but don't settle for their relationship with God. Have your own. Walk with God. The most important thing you will ever learn is how to hear and obey God. The most important thing you will ever teach is how to hear and obey God. To know and experience him, that's why we're here. I want you to have a firsthand faith. As our kids were growing up, we, we used Deuteronomy chapter six as our curriculum for life. You know the text, Deuteronomy six, Verses four through nine, it says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road 
when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. I listened to that text. I read that text. I studied that text. You see, when my kids were little, I kept hearing people talk about having a family altar. I did not grow up in a preacher's home. We did not have a family altar. Didn't know what that meant. I was at Glorietta one summer when our kids were small and there was a preacher there who was talking about the importance of this and he kept stressing it, kept emphasizing it. I had my notebook open, my pen ready. I was leaning in and he never said how to do it. To this day, I regret that I never really learned how to do that, but my wife and I took this heart to text to text, this text to heart. I just checking to see if y'all were listening. And uh, uh, this is how we tried to raise our kids. Everywhere we went, everything we did was an object lesson. When I would take my kids to school in the morning, we had adventures along the way. Every day, it seemed like there was a guy in a pickup truck with this big, ugly bulldog in the back. And he would run from side to side, looking at at different people in different cars and barking at everybody. He was always mad about something. So we talked about that. Life is too short to be mad at everybody. Just a thought before you go on social media. One day we were driving to school and we were going by Cedar Bayou there in the the Baytown area out east of uh, Houston. And there was a mid-sized wading bird, white bird about this tall, and he had a bullfrog in his mouth about this long. And I looked at my kids and I said, let that be a lesson to you. Don't bite off more than you can chew. There was no way that little bird was going to swallow that frog, and the frog knew it. He was just hanging out. He knew this, this was not going to end badly for him. As we would get to school, there was was a a flock of pigeons that were always right there on the grounds, right next to this house uh, near the parking lot where uh, I dropped off the kids. Because someone in that house fed pigeons. I don't know if you've ever fed a pigeon before, but you don't feed just one. It's kind of like Lay's potato chips. When you start feeding pigeons, they're everywhere. So every day when we would get to the school, there was that flock of pigeons. They would either be sitting on the wires or down on the ground eating. And always, always there was one bird facing the wrong way. I don't know if you know anything about pigeons, but the reason they do their, I can't do that, I had neck surgery last summer. Uh, when they, they do that because they don't have depth perception with their eyesight. And so they, to gain depth perception, they move their head back and forth. And If a cat is sneaking up on you, a pigeon is truly vulnerable unless there's a lookout. And so we talked about Boris, the backward bird. He was backward to everybody, but he saved somebody. Just a thought. You might feel out of step. You might feel backward. You might just be Boris, the backward bird, who has the word that saves somebody's life for eternity.
You know, one of the things we talked about is we, when we saw people driving in traffic rather rudely. I, I know y'all, we've got some folks moving from other states to Texas and they don't know how to drive yet. Have y'all noticed that? And, and what we would say is, what I would say to them is life is full of jerks. You don't have to be one of them. My daughter, uh, I can't tell you her age because she is approaching that age from which you never recover. You hear what I'm saying? And uh, she quoted recently that statement that she heard first when she was five years old. That's been drilled into her head. So all of our lives, we have tried to live what this text teaches. We've tried to take the ordinary stuff of life and apply God's truth in every circumstance. Now, you're here at seminary. You have a lot of books to read, a lot of papers to write, and every one of them is meaningful. It's important that you take this seriously. I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He pointed back here. And in Matthew 22 and Mark and Luke, where it talks about this, he talks about loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Oh, I want you to stretch your mind while you're here. When I was in my first week of seminary in, the, in January of 1986, President Russell Dilday said seminary means seedbed. This isn't finishing school. This is starting school. The curriculum is the Bible, and you are going to learn how to teach yourself for the rest of your life. I hope I never forget those words. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. And don't forget to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Read all of those books, write all of those papers, show up to every class, participate in every discussion, and spend time alone with God every day. You must do that. It, there are academic professionals in other theological schools around this country who do not spend time alone with God every day, who do not join their brothers and sisters in Christ in a worship service Sunday by Sunday. And I want to tell you, do not be like them. Develop a firsthand faith. As my kids grew, I, I realized that they heard me preach on Sunday. They, they were involved in, in Sunday school classes and Bible studies of one kind or another, uh, missions, activities, ministries around our community. And that was good, but I needed to give them something more. And every morning I would get up at five o'clock and spend time alone with God. And it became a conviction to me that I needed to do more than just read the Bible and my utmost for his highest. Those were good things. Nothing wrong with that. I hope that you do that. But I came to the conviction that I needed to begin writing down what God was saying to me and putting it in a form my kids could receive and learn from. They could take it to heart and they could develop a firsthand faith themselves. They would not just rely on me. 
And so I took the SOAP Bible study method. You know that one? Rick Warren wrote a, wrote a book years ago called 12 Dynamic Bible Study Methods. Uh, the first review I heard of that uh, uh, said, well, only about four of them are dynamic. The others are just okay. Well, they're all good, but the one that really sticks with me is that SOAP Bible study. SOAP is an acrostic. S stands for scripture. As you read through God's word each day, what really stands out to you? What is God saying to you? Write that verse down. The O stands for observation. Here's what God is saying to me, and you write that down. The A stands for application, and I always begin it with two words, I will. If it's an application, it's something God intends for me to do. So I will, and I fill in the rest of the sentence. The P stands for prayer. You take that, what God is saying to you, and you turn that back into a prayer to God. Simple stuff. I began writing those devotionals and giving those to my kids, uh, sending them by email. My, and my wife and kids began sharing them with their friends and coworkers and so on. And that has gone on for years. And now it's a, it's a large enough mailing list that I have to have a virtual assistant uh, help me with, with that, creating a, a list. And then she also takes... Uh, ideas from those devotionals, and she posts those on Twitter and and on Instagram uh, for me, and we're able to spread that just a little bit farther. I love that. You know, my utmost for his highest, you've probably read that at one time or another. Do you know when Oswald Chambers wrote that? He didn't. After he died, his wife took her notes that she had written while he taught all those years, and she put those in that form. And we still gain so much from those words. What record are you leaving of what God is doing in your life? If we hear and obey God, how are we helping others learn how to do that, especially those we are most closely connected with? I hope that you will learn the difference between Bible reading and Bible study. As Rick Warren said in that book, Bible study involves a pen and paper, or for me today, a computer, uh, an iPad. I want you to have a first-hand faith. You know, these guys here in this text, in Acts 19, they're not the first ones to have a second-hand faith. As I was reading through Genesis earlier this year, a couple of weeks ago, it occurred to me that Abraham, Isaac, they had first-hand faith, but then Jacob, for the longest time, had a second time, second-hand faith. It took him getting beat up by God to develop a first-hand faith. My pre-theology advisor at the state school I attended for college was a Russian Orthodox monk priest. And he told me, something I've never forgotten, and let me pass it along to you. He said, if you read your sermons, you will put people to sleep. We train children to go to sleep when we read to them. 
and most adults never get over it. At the risk of that, I want to read one of those daily devotionals I wrote recently about Jacob's life. In Genesis 32, 9 through 12, it says, Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. In Genesis 28, we see Jacob make a vow in response to God's message to him in a dream. We read his vow in verses 20 through 22. Notice Jacob's if-then bargaining. God had told him what he would do in verses 13 through 15. Jacob indicated if God did what he said he would do, then he would accept his father's God and his grandfather's God as his God. In other words, Jacob was not yet all in on team God. When the separation from Laban was in the planning stages with Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, chapter 31, Jacob speaks of God as the God of my father. During the confrontation with Laban on the journey back to Canaan, again, Jacob identifies God as the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Keep reading and see the oaths Laban and Jacob made toward one another. In verse 53, uh, you find these words, May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. To this point in Jacob's life, he had at best a second-hand faith. Then things changed forever. And it started with a prayer. Chapter 32 sets up the anticipated renewal of conflict with Esau. Esau, you might recall, swore to kill Jacob. For the first time, Jacob initiates a prayer encounter with God. He still leans on the faith relationship of his father and grandfather, but he begins his prayer, verse 9, by saying, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, the prayer is earnest, it's heartfelt. Jacob acknowledges God as the source of all the good things in his life. He asked to be saved from Esau. He reminded God of what he had said that night when he was running from Esau into the manipulative hands of Laban. When did Job, uh, Jacob stop living off of his father and grandfather's relationship with God? Verses 22 through 32 tell us a wonderful tale. If you're familiar with the movie Princess Bride, you understand what it means when the dread pirate Robert says, I am not left-handed. When we come to the end of this episode where Jacob has wrestled with God all night long, Jacob discovers that God could have dispatched him at any time. God demonstrated his power and authority by renaming Jacob. He also wrenched his hip. Jacob is now named Israel. The deceiver, the manipulator, the heel grabber became one who wrestles with God and man 
and overcomes. Jacob, newly named Israel, who ran from Esau, who ran from Laban, will never run again. The plan Jacob devised to appease his brother to save his own skin was turned on its head. Whereas he had planned to stay at the rear of the column of all the family and friends, now we see in verse 30, chapter 33, verse 3, he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Israel moved more directly into the purpose and plan of God with a limp than Jacob could with all of his strength and speed. The bottom line of this verse, this episode, comes in verse 20. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. What does this mean? Mighty is the God of Israel. Before Israel was a nation, it was just a man whose name had been changed, who had gone from having a second-hand faith to a first-hand faith. Jacob could manipulate people and situations. Israel deferred to God to lead the way, to show the way, to move him along the way in his timing and his strength. When did your faith become a first-hand faith? I will limp along at God's pace in his strength. Let's pray. Our Father, you are mighty. You are the almighty. There is none like you. Thank you for a first-hand faith relationship. I want this to be true for me, for my family, for my coworkers, my friends. I want this to be true for all people everywhere. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.